Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatchett, and you are tuned in to the Double-Edged Sword Program here on our fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KGOH 89.1 Colby, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, KJDM 101.7 Lindsburg Salina, and the station where it all started, 88.1 Hayes, KVDM, the voice of divine mercy. And here on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are using these Catholic airwaves to cut to the heart of a deceptive culture. And today, on this installment of Double-Edged Sword, I wanted to talk a little bit about marriage. Um, kind of the, the good news, the bad news, you know, whatever kind of news there is, there's all kinds of stuff going on. And normally we divide the program into two halves. And so for the first half of the program, we're just going to kind of do a survey, kind of inspect the damage here a little bit. And um, I, th I think the things that I'm going to be talking about are things that are not going to be new to anybody um, listening to this broadcast. Um, but nonetheless, I think, you know, we kind of need to see where we're at to kind of get an idea as to where we're going or where we could be going. And so, um, again, I think it's no secret that marriage is on the ropes. Um, and, you know, when we when we look at, you know, the so-called same-sex marriage, you know, where the Supreme Court kind of pulled that right out of the air, the way they pulled, the, the way they generated the so-called right to an abortion, um, the abortion one was finally overturned. Um, I don't know if the same-sex marriage thing will be overturned or not. Um, if you thought that the wailing and gnashing of teeth was was loud when um, the Supreme Court decided that there really was no right to abortion in the Constitution. Um, if they come to the same conclusion that there really is no right to two people of the same sex to get married in the Constitution, um, we will have Billy Hell. But nonetheless, um, I think, you know, the, the so-called same-sex marriage has done incalculable damage to our understanding of what marriage is supposed to be about. Um, and um, so we can talk about that. Another thing that we've all come to accept, and it wasn't always accepted, it wasn't always this way, was this idea of no-fault divorce. And that is Billy Bob and Lula Bell just look at each other and go, I really don't want to be married to you anymore. Okay, let's just trot on down to the courthouse and the judge will sign a decree of divorce and we're done with this. It always hasn't been that way. It used to be up until um, whenever Nevada, I believe, was the first state. And I, I want to say it was back in the late 1960s, early 1970s, when Nevada was the first state to say, yeah, if you don't want to be, want to be married anymore, just come to court and we'll fix you up. Before that, the courts understood, the state understood, and really without having to appeal to any kind of a Christian basis, although I suppose they probably did because they're all Christian folks back then, but you wouldn't even have to appeal to the scripture or, or any kind of a Christian frame of reference to know that when men and women join in marriage for life, in order to start a, you know, to, to begin a household with their family, with their children and so on, that the, the culture at large benefits from this. You know, the state has an interest in there being healthy marriages. And whenever they kind of, whenever they allowed or, you know, kind of caved into the idea of no-fault divorce, that we, well, we just don't want to be married anymore, that's done incalculable damage to our culture and to our society and, you know, to the society at large. I think the only reason why we've been able to hide from that is because the United States has a lot of money. And so when you look at the, the, the moral and social chaos that no-fault divorce has brought, um, one of the ways that manifests itself is that kids have a harder time in school. They have a harder time achieving in school at the level they should be achieving and so on. And but the thing of it is, we've got tons of money in this country. And so whenever, you know, the, the, mar the marriages and households started falling apart, the schools picked up the slack by having breakfast at school, lunch at school, supper at school, after school programs, extra paraprofessional teachers in the classrooms to work with the kids and so on. And so in a certain sense, we've been able to, um, to avoid some of the fallout from no-fault divorce. But the thing of it is, is other things such as the prison population and so on, that, that's, that's been a problem as well. Another thing we find is that promiscuity before marriage indicates infidelity and divorce after marriage. And again, this is all part of the sexual revolution of the 60s, where again, people used to know just kind of by firsthand experience that when you're playing around with sex, you're playing around with fire and on a bunch of different levels. 
Um, one, I think people understood that if you start having sex with someone, you're going to start processing the idea of bonding with this person to some extent or another. And the only place for that bond to really healthily take root and take place is within the exclusive um, confines of, of marriage. And so when all of a sudden people are going no, aided and abetted by the readily available contraceptives out there, we can just kind of have sex with whoever and whenever we want. And so you have all these people out there who are, you know, whether they like it or not, whether they want to admit it or not, whether they know it or not, you know, they're having sex with these other people and trying to bond with them. And then they just drop them and go on to somebody else. And that just really plays havoc um, with, a, with a person's conscience and with their psyche. Furthermore, when you have people who prepared for marriage with promiscuity, with fornication, then it's kind of hard for them to stop that after marriage. I mean, it's not reasonable to have somebody go, yeah, from the time I was 15 at my public school, they made, they made all these contraceptives available to us. And we were out, you know, having all kinds of, you know, sexual experiences and so on. Oh, but I'm married now. That all stops. Well, I think we all know that doesn't work. And so again, promiscuity before marriage is a great indicator of infidelity after marriage, and infidelity is devastating to marriages, a great cause of divorce. Um, the other thing that goes along with this is people just living together instead of marrying at all. I think according to the last census, that um, whenever you know, they, they looked at households that had a man and a woman living in them, only 45% of them were married. Um, the rest of them are people just living together, you know, for, for whatever kind of a arrangement, whatever kind of a reason. And, um, and, you know, again, I think that we just have to look at that. And I just always kind of tell myself, well, you know, if these people want to do this and they want to wreck their own lives and turn their life into a, you know, a dumpster fire, well, go right ahead. I really don't care. But they start having kids. And then the kids grow up, and one of the things that's going to happen a lot in this, in this installment of Double-Edged Sword in this broadcast is I'm going to put in a whole bunch of, of anecdotes, you know, things that I've picked up in my 30-some years as a priest, and, um, and share them with you. You know, one of them was, years ago, I was dealing with, a, there was a kid was having a hard time in his school, and so the mom, not the mom and the dad, just the mom, um, brings him over to talk. And so we sat in my office, and... And I just said, look, buddy, I said, let's just talk man to man here. I said, you know, on the one hand, if we want to, you know, we can meet and we can talk and we can meet and we can talk. Or it's kind of like pulling the Band-Aid off. You can just say what's on your mind, say what's bothering you, and we will make a lot of progress here real fast. And, um, and the kid, you know, w without much, you know, didn't really hesitate too much. It was like, ah, finally, now I can say it. And what happened was his mom and dad were just living together. They had never gotten married, even civilly. And so whenever they would get into an argument, you know, the big stick that was always waiting in the closet, the tactical nuclear warhead, was for one of them to say to the other, look, we're not married. I don't have to put up with this. You know, I'm out of here. And so the mom or the dad would storm out of the house and the kid would either be in bed hearing this or the kid would, you know, not be in bed yet and he would see it and he goes to bed thinking, gosh, you know, he, he doesn't really think of his, his parents in terms of husband and wife. He thinks of them in terms of mom and dad. And so this kid's sitting there going to bed thinking, when I get up in the morning or when I get home from school tomorrow afternoon, is my mommy or is my daddy going to be here? And that's what was causing all this trouble for this kid was, you know, the, the parents would, would use that as, the, as the, the trump card that when they got mad at each other and they're yelling at each other, it's like, we're not married. I don't have to put up with this. I'm out of here. Well, you know, then the kid goes to school, you know, in, you know, with high anxiety, wondering, you know, what's going to happen to his, to his home life, what's going to happen to his household. And oddly enough, he doesn't do very well on a spelling test. Oddly enough, he can't remember his, you know, multiplication tables or something like that. And so, again, the mom just can't understand, you know, why is he doing so badly in school? Why is he acting up? And it's like, well, you know, think about that. You know, when you have mom and dad who are married as husband and wife, you know, they have their troubles and their travails and the things they work through, um, but they work through them. And when the kids see that, they go, well, you know, mom and dad have, you know, they got to work through this, but... You know, they're the hub of the wheel and we're the spokes 
and it's, you know, the wheel is still sound. You know, whenever I get home from school, mom and dad are both going to be here. And so, you know, it's all good. And so, um, again, I think that when you, when you look at the, the trend of people just living together and not marrying at all, again, if people want to do that as adults, well, you know, nothing, nothing not much I can do about it. But when it starts spilling over and having negative consequences on the kids, I think we should all be worried about that. Um, the other thing is, is that, you know, people who do marry, assuming they marry at all, they're having few, if any, children. And I just find it remarkable anymore whenever I, you know, go around Salina, Kansas here, whenever I'm going to um, um, going to the store or, you know, just mountain about, you just don't see kids anymore. You know, the, I look back when I was growing up in Hutchinson, Kansas, and our neighborhood was crawling with kids. And, um, and you just don't see kids. And it doesn't take long to see that if, well, if there's no kids, then in not too many years, there's no teenagers. And in not too many years, there's no 20-somethings. And in not too many years, there's no college students. You know, it, you know, it's remarkable how the universities have been the ones to really, you know, f- force this, you know, wacko lifestyle on people of saying, you know, well, you know, sex is just sex and, you know, who you have sex with is your choice and love is love and none of it really matters and so on. Well, the result of it is, is that nobody's having kids, which means there's nobody more to go to college. And so, again, these colleges are cutting their nose off in spite of their face by promoting all of this, all this social mayhem because it's going to catch up to them and a bunch of them are going to be losing their jobs. And then the other thing that I'm seeing is we have many young people who are growing up without ever having attended a wedding. And to me, that's huge. Um, you know, just this past year when I was teaching my sophomores at Sacred Heart High, I asked them, I, you know, I had, I, I had 26 kids all together, and I asked them, I said, how many of you have been to a wedding in the last two or three years? Now, the 26 kids, only about five or six of them raised their hand and said they had. There are vast, you know, swaths of our population. I know in the African-American community, about 86% of the kids are born out of wedlock. And, you know, 86 to 90% of the kids in the African-American community have never been to a wedding in their life. None of the people that they're around, you know, their, their parents, their siblings, you know, their aunts, uncles, and so on, they're just not getting married. And so when we have entire generations now of young people who have grown up, got into young adulthood, and never even been to a wedding, all they see is people just moving in, shacking up, hooking up, you know, making illegitimate kids and so on. They take that as the normal. And if you try to go in and convince them otherwise, they just kind of look at you like, you know, what is your problem? Can't, you know, it's what we do is, you know, embrace tolerance, celebrate diversity, be open-minded, you know? Well, the result of this, again, is just nothing short of this, this social and moral chaos that we're all seeing around us. I think that, um, again, it's one thing to, um, if, you know, when people will say, well, you know, you're living together outside of marriage, that's a sin more, you know, fornication, having sex outside of marriage, that's a sin. Well, that's true. You know, I mean, you know, the Bible attests that all over the place. And, um, you know, who are we to argue with that? But at the same time, I think that what we need to be doing as part of the conversation is that if we say, well, you know, the Bible says that sex outside of marriage is a sin. Well, if you try using that line of reasoning at some university somewhere in your sociology class or what have you, or, you know, if you're talking around the, you know, the break room table at work or whatever, you try using that reasoning, you as well as I know, you're not going to get very far with that. Instead, I think what we have to be looking at is the, the, the fallout, the consequences, the results, and ask ourselves, do we really want these results? Do we really want the results of all these kids being in school and, you know, it costing us, you know, millions and you know, billions of dollars to have all these auxiliary personnel in the, in the, in the schools, you know, so these kids can hopefully learn something? Or, you know, I've, I can't remember exactly what the statistic is, but it's very high that, um, that in the jails, I want to say, I want to say the word, the number is 85%. The 85% of the men in our prisons are the sons of unwed mothers. You know, that um, if, if you have a, a young boy or a young man who is raised by just his mother, his likelihood of going to jail is very, very high. Now, the corollary to this is, is if you have a boy who is raised by just his father, he is no more likely to go to jail than a boy who is raised by his mother and father both. 
Now, does this mean mothers are not necessary? Absolutely not. Anyone that proposed that would be about as stupid as the people that propose that fathers are unnecessary. Mothers and fathers are both necessary. As Pope St. John Paul the Great said, the father is the head of the family and the mother is its heart. And, um, and so the thing of it is, in, in our equality-crazed culture, where everybody's the same, everybody's equal, well, sorry, we're not. Um, we are unique. And, um, and so when you look at, at the role of the heart and the head, if you chop someone's head off, they will die. If you gouge someone's heart out, they will die. But a heart and a head are very, very different. They have very different functions. They are equally necessary for life, but they have very different functions. And so as we can see, with, with you know, mothers and fathers being both necessary, but when we're holding the, you know, we're doing the, the experiment and holding just for the variable of going to jail, okay, that what we find is, again, is if you have a boy who is raised by just his mother, 85% of the kids we have, the, young, of the men we have in jail, are the sons of unwed mothers. However, if you have a boy who's raised by just his father, he is no more likely to go to jail than a boy who is raised by his mother and his father. And so, again, all this nonsense that we hear about, you know, I think it was Gloria Steinem, you know, the, the, the feminist wacko from back in the 70s, you know, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Well, you know, maybe a woman doesn't need a man, but the kids sure do, okay? And, um, the, the, you know, the, the children need a mother and a father in the home. And whenever we deprive those children of that mother and that father, we have the social chaos that we are brought upon ourselves. And so, again, I think that when, we, when we're looking at marriage, you know, kind of looking at the, the, the landscape of marriage, we can see that with, you know, fewer and fewer people getting married these days and the fallout of that, the results of that are results that no reasonable person would go, well, that's good. Oh, yeah, isn't it a good thing that, you know, we have 85% of our jail, of our prison populations are in our, you know, boys, the sons of unwed mothers? Oh, isn't it great that we have this high dropout rate in high school? Isn't it wonderful that we have all these kids that are going through school and can't read and do math at their grade level they're supposed to? That's just what we were hoping for all these years whenever we instituted all these ideas and philosophies. Well, you know, again, I don't think any reasonable person would say those are good things. And unless and until we come around and start saying, you know, we really need to get marriage and family back on track again. Um, we need to understand what marriage and family is about. And even if we have to use, you know, secular terms, which I'd be totally okay with, because the thing is, is that truth is truth. And whether the truth comes from, you know, the sociological statistics or something, or it comes from the scripture, it's all going to lead us back to the same place anyway. It's all going to lead us back to God. And so on the one hand, we can look at this and say, it is necessary for a man and a woman to commit themselves to a lifelong exclusive relationship in the sacrament of matrimony. If they're going to live together and have sexual relations and have children and so on, you know, God has ordained this as what is the best and, you know, we dare not violate God's laws. Okay, you know, as Christians, you know, we, we would buy that, you know, at least I hope we would. Christians would accept that. But what if you're not a Christian? You know, what if you don't believe in the Bible? What if you don't believe in God? Okay, fine, then let's go the other way. Um, do you think that it's a good thing that 85% of our prison population, and you know, again, to keep somebody, to keep one of these guys in prisons for a year, in prison for a year, you know, costs about seventy thousand dollars. The 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 number I keep I keep hearing thrown around is that it costs as much to keep a guy in prison for a year as it would cost to send him to Harvard, to Harvard University. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, you know, we're paying for this, you know, in, in with, our, with our tax money or with money that is borrowed in our name or money that is printed. Um, the borrowing and the printing, of course, are doing terrible things to our economy. But um, this money, one way or the other, is going in, you know, to pay for the pay for the prisons and pay, you know, pay the seventy thousand dollars a piece, you know, per guy that's in jail, and ask ourselves, you know, if we had moms and dads at home, eighty-five percent of that would go away, and um, we would have much fewer people in prison, and we'd be saving a bundle of money. And so again, I don't think you know you can see where you don't really have to be a Christian uh, or a you know a Bible believing Catholic to to understand the connection between 
growing up in a household where mom and dad are not married and dad's absent and so on, and the high correlation of those, uh, the high statistical probability of those people going to jail and the rest of us paying for it and going, you know, that's not a good thing. We don't, we don't need that. That's bad news. Or again, go to the, you know, go to the schools. Um, very few teachers will talk about this openly because they, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be canceled. They'll be shut down. They might even lose their jobs. But when you get teachers privately, they'll tell you, you know, yeah, you know, Susie, you know, she she doesn't have a daddy at home and mom's doing the best she can. But, you know, Susie comes to school and she's always a wreck when she gets here. And it takes us about half the day to calm her down and get her focused on her schoolwork. And then by the end, by the end of the school day, she's doing pretty good. But then she goes home and she comes back the next day and we start all over again. Okay, or, you know, Johnny, same way, you know. So the thing is, is, is again, all we have to do is look at these numbers and look at the studies and look at the, the, the various um, behaviors that are, that are going on here and ask ourselves, is this the way that we want to go? And again, I think any reasonable person would say, no, you know, this is not good at all. And so, again, you know, just kind of we'll close off this first part of the program with this with a survey of, of, of marriage and family in the United States. A lot of the news is bad, as we know. But again, I think that it's important for us to be able to um, talk about these things outside of the Christian context. Because with a lot of folks, the second you say the Bible says this or the church teaches that or, you know, God has revealed this, you've lost the you've lost the debate right there. Instead, I think we have to be able to articulate these things in terms of just raw sociological data and just look at the numbers and say, well, this is where this has taken us. Are you sure you want to go there? Now, the thing is, is once you get people convinced that, well, once we look at the data and the numbers and we find out that this is taking us to a place we don't want to go, oh, by the way, look what the Bible says. By the way, look what the church teaches. Oh, by the way, look what God's revealed to us. <laughs> Funny how it both takes us to the same place. So again, you know, for, for those of us who are believers, you know, the, the, the debate is pretty easy. All we have to do is look at the teachings of the church and what the scriptures tell us. And then either we're going to agree with what the church teaches and what the Bible says, or we don't. And if we don't, well, then don't call yourself a Christian, I guess. But, um, but again, I think that for this first part of the program, that's kind of the way I wanted to, you know, frame the whole thing up is, you know, looking at the, at the, the horizon and seeing, you know, how things are going and a lot of bad news there. But then also for us to be able to engage these things on secular terms when we're dealing with other people. Because if we start off saying the Bible says this or Jesus said that, you know, we're, we're dead in the water from the get-go. Instead, you know, look at the numbers, look at the raw data and just ask people, do you really think this is good? Should we be heading down or we are heading down this road? Should we stay on this road? Then, you know, once people start seeing, well, you know, yeah, I guess, you know, it's pretty bad news. Then we can say, well, you know, and by the way, you know, the Bible, the church, you know, they're all going to take us to the same place. So again, we'll, we'll take a little break here. I am Father Fred Gatchett. I am the, the pastor at Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas, and the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina. And you are listening to the, to the Double-Edged Sword program here on the fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KGOH 89.1 Colby, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, KJDM 101.7 Lindsburg Salina, and our founding station where it all began, KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And here on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. Um, we're going to take a few minutes, a little bit of break here, while we hear from the folks that bring this program to you. Sit tight, and we'll be right back. Hey, gang, we are back. This is Father Fred Gatchett on the Double-Edged Sword program here on the, the fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, 105.7 Hayes, KMDG, 89.1 Colby, KGOH, 88.1 Great Bend, KRTT, 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, KJDM, and 88.1 Hayes, KVDM. And here on the Double-Edged Sword program, we're cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And on this installment of Double-Edged Sword, in the first part of the program, we were talking about the, the state of marriage in this country and how there's kind of a lot of bad news out there. Um, but on the second half of the program, I want to talk about some of the bright spots and offer some, some um, solutions to some of the problems that we're facing with marriage. 
And um, the first one is, it's like, well, you know, if we, we say, well, you know, marriage is in, you know, pretty dire straits right now because few people are getting married. And those who do get married, a high number of them get divorced within a very short amount of time. In fact, when we look at, at the, the numbers with that, one of the biggest indicators for divorce, one of the, one of the, the, the main you know, red, red lights that goes off that warns us that, that a marriage is probably not going to last very long is if the couple is living together and fornicating and contracepting before marriage. Okay? People who live together, have an active sex life, and are using contraceptives before they get married, about 85% of those people divorce within five years. And um, so that's one of the things that, you know, people really have a hard time accepting. You know, it's like, well, I wouldn't buy a pair of pants without trying them on first. I wouldn't buy a car without test driving two or three of them first. Why in the name of heaven would I commit myself to a person without living with them first to see if it would work? Well, again, you know, it looks like on the surface, hey, that's a pretty good idea. The problem is, is that in practice, you know, we see in the real world that it doesn't. That 85% of those people divorced in five years. So the thing of it is, if people are married, if they've, if they've taken their vows, you know, they've gone to church, they had a wedding mass, and now, you know, here they've embarked on the grand venture, adventure of marriage, you know, what do they do? Well, you know, they're, they're moving along, things, you know, some days are good, some days are bad. Um, but then, you know, as, as always happens, folks have problems, and they got to kind of sort through them. And how do we do that? What do, you know, how do we, if we, you know, we're having a problem as a married couple, if things aren't going well, what do we do? Well, there's all kinds of things people do. And one of the things people do is they trot on down to some kind of a counselor. And that's probably okay kind of as far as it goes. But what I'm going to recommend, and before you shut me down, don't you dare shut off that dial until you hear me out here. Okay, and I'll tell you what I'm done. And after, you're, after I'm done, you can shut me out if you want. But the first one is prayer. And you're going, oh my gosh, here I thought I was going to get some deep, profound solution here to my problems. And he's telling me to pray about it. Well, let's look at this. It might sound kind of trite and banal to say so. But again, I wonder how many marriages have failed simply because the couple never thought to humble themselves before Almighty God and pray. That is to say, you have Billy Bob and Lulabelle, and they're having a tough time in their marriage right now. Lord knows what it is. You know, it could be, you know, financial problems or they're just not communicating the way they should and so on. I wonder how many of those folks, if it ever occurred to them, okay, before we say any more angry words to each other, we're going to get in the car, we're going to drive to the Perpetual Adoration Chapel, and we're going to spend an hour together in prayer before the Blessed Sacrament. Okay? Now, the thing is, in our increasingly secular and atheistic society, prayer is ridiculed. I mean, I saw saw a, a, a kind of a cartoon or whatever the other day. It showed the Pope in his Pope mobile, and uh, and then you know, it, you know it's got bulletproof glass around it and everything. And it says, "See, even the Pope does not believe in thoughts and prayers." Okay, you know the idea being that if we take reasonable go to reasonable extents to protect ourselves instead of instead of trusting in God 100%, then, you know, then we're not living up to our rhetoric. Well, I mean, that's just ridiculous. But the thing is, is that, you know, when, whenever we have this idea that really the only real solutions that, 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 we can, that we can find are with psychology and government interventions, you know, well, the thing of it is, okay, Try that. Take it as far as it will take you. And we've already done that, and we see where it's gotten us, a sky-high divorce rate. In the book of Tobit, okay, we read about the wedding night with Tobit's son Tobias and his new bride, Sarah. You know, they had met each other, and, you know, Tobias is delighted, you know, with the prospect of his new wife. And so um, they, they have the marriage ceremony, all the marriage, the wedding party stuff all kind of dies down, and they're getting ready to bed down for the night. And it says here, this is, what, this is how they did their wedding night. So this is a little bit kind of a long passage from Scripture, so bear with me. It says, Tobias rose up from bed and said to his wife, My love, get up. Let us pray and beg our Lord to have mercy on us and to grant us deliverance. So Sarah got up and they started to pray and to beg the deliverance might be theirs. And they began to say, Blessed are you, O God of our fathers. Praise be your name forever and ever. Let the heavens and all your creation praise you forever. You made Adam and you gave him his wife Eve to be his help and support. And from these two, the human race descended. You said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Let us make a partner like himself. 
Now, Lord, you know that I take this wife of mine, not because of lust, but for a noble purpose. Call down your mercy on me and her, and allow us to live together to a happy old age. They said together, Amen, Amen, and went to bed for the night. Now, again, how many couples do you think ever started their marriage off you know they they had the big wedding day they you know they went to the wedding reception um usually most people say after the reception you know which you know they're not going to get to bed till two or three in the morning anyway they're pretty dog tired by then anyway but how many of them do you think have the presence of mind to say okay billy bob okay lula bell you know, we have really gotten ourselves into it. We, we took, we made a commitment and this is till death do us part. We had better humble ourselves before almighty God and pray like Tobias and Sarah did. I mean, again, I just wonder how much different it would be for married couples if they began their marriages, you know, having prayed together. There, there's a, a couple of um, anecdotes that come to mind. One was there was a couple that I knew and knew them pretty well. And um, they'd been married for a long time, you know, well over 50 years. And the, the man died, you know, the woman's husband died. And as was my habit, as still is my habit, uh, when, when people die, if there's a surviving spouse, I always kind of make it a point to kind of go to their house maybe a, a week or two after the funeral and check in on them and see how they're doing. And so I went over and, went and checked on this lady. And again, she's a very gracious, very nice lady. I go to her house and, oh, Father, thanks for coming. How you doing? We're just talking and everything. And, you know, she got a little bit weepy and she was talking about, yeah, I just really miss having John around, you know. And, and um, you know, we were together for a long time and yeah, I understand all that. Well, anyway, she went over and she picked up this, she had this stack of, there were like, you know, prayer cards and a little prayer book and stuff. And it was all in pretty bad shape. It had to be held together with a rubber band. And, um, and she, she held it up and she showed it to me and she goes, you know, she goes, this was John and my prayers. You know, we said these prayers every night. I said, really? I mean, they didn't go through the whole stack. They'd be there forever. But they, you know, they would find things in there and they, they would, you know, find there was a holy card in there. They had a prayer to St. Michael or there was, you know, some other prayers and so forth that they had in this prayer book, you know, family prayers and so on. And she said, you know, we'd say our prayers every night together. And then this was the thing that she said that just knocked me off my, off my chair. She said, you know, it's kind of hard to stay mad at someone after you've prayed with them. And I thought, man, that is profound. It's kind of hard to stay mad at someone after you've prayed with them. And I'm just sitting there thinking again, how many marriages could have been saved, would have been saved if the couple had just taken some time to pray together? You know, our, our culture, you know, the media-driven culture that we have ridicules, you know, the idea of thoughts and prayers. You know, I remember there was, there was some angry woman, you know, she, she didn't really suffer any kind of a loss herself, but she was just really, you know, angry at the, at the idea of, you know, there'd be a shooting somewhere. And, you know, the, the local politicians, you know, well, our thoughts and our prayers are with the family as they go through this tragedy and so on and so forth. Well, there was this gal and she thought she was gonna make a point. And um, she, she took out her checkbook and um, there, you know, whoever this, you know, candidate, whoever this senator or congressman, whatever was, you know, she writes on the, you know, pay to the order of, you know, Billy Bob McGillicuddy, whatever his name is. And then on the, on the line below where you would write out, you know, 500 and no dollars or whatever, and she puts on their thoughts and prayers. And then she mailed the check to the guy. In other words, you know, thoughts and prayers are worthless. You talk about thoughts and prayers, pal. Well, here's your thoughts and prayers. Go cash this to the bank and see if you can get reelected on thoughts and prayers. You know, that's what the gal was saying. Well, you know, the thing of it is, is I, you know, I would just throw it out at the listeners and ask yourself, you know, how do you, how different do you think it would be for married couples if they took the time to pray together? Because again, as this woman said, it's awful hard to stay mad at someone once you've prayed with them. That statement that she made is going to resonate in my head until the day I die. It is awful hard to stay mad at someone once you've prayed with them. Um, it's also hard to be mad at people when you pray for them. I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, Jesus says, pray for your enemies, pray for your persecutors. And, you know, because if we pray for those folks, it's awful hard to, you know, bear grudges and, and to, you know, to keep on harboring anger and hatred and so forth in our hearts if we prayed for them. So again, I, just my, my first point is that when we look at what, what, we, what might help to hold marriages together is prayer for the reasons that I stated. 
The next one is um, the, um, the idea that with marriage, with the couple, the man and the woman, their marriage and their salvation are intertwined. In other words, when the couple gets married, it's not just, you know, it's like back in the old days with like with King Solomon, for example, you know, King Solomon supposedly, you know, married these 700 other women. I don't think it's really 700. That's a biblical number. Just meaning there's a lot because back in those days, that's the way you would cement alliances between kingdoms. You know, the king would take the daughter of a neighboring king and, you know, make him make her his wife. The idea being the neighboring king then is not going to attack the other king and his kingdom and risk killing his own daughter. And so as one of the ways you could kind of, you know, make peace between kingdoms would be for the for the king or the king's son to marry the daughter of, of the of the neighboring king. Um, we see this really, really fairly, you know, up until fairly recent times in Europe, you know, where the the, da- the son of the king of England marries the daughter of the king of Spain, you know, and things like that. And so um, the, the thing is, is in times gone by, you know, people's fortunes, you know, you might have a, you know, a, a couple of wealthy families and, you know, the, the son of the wealthy family marries the daughter of another wealthy family to kind of, you know, marry their fortunes, as it were. You know, there's all kinds of reasons like that. But in Christian marriage, whenever the man and the woman get married, it's now not just their fortunes that are tied together. It's their very salvation. The way they're going to, as St. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. And the way this couple is now going to work out their salvation is by living out their, you know, the working out of their salvation within the sacrament of matrimony. Or, you know, we look at what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's a, the 1 Corinthians 7 is, is the, the treasure trove of St. Paul's advice um, to married people, to widows and widowers, to people that are engaged, that are thinking about getting married and so on. But, whenever, but what St. Paul says here, he says, for the unbelieving husband is consecrated through his wife and the unbelieving wife is consecrated through her husband. Then we have what's called the ellipsis, the dot, 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 because they're leaving some stuff out. But anyway, at the end of, at the end of that chapter 7, St. Paul says, Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? In other words, St. Paul is saying is when you have, you know, a, a man and a woman that come together for in, in matrimony, it's not that hard to imagine that one of them is probably going to be more spiritually advanced than the other. It's very rare that they're, that they're you know, progressing in life on equal terms. Usually one of them, usually the woman, um, is more spirit is more into her spirituality um, than the other one is usually the man, but it can be the other it can be the other way around. But the whole idea is is that you know here you, you know Saint Paul says well, but wife how do you know for all you know you may save your husband, husband for all you know you may save your wife. In other words, the salvation of these two now is bound up one with the other because of the bonds of the sacrament of matrimony. You know it's it's not like a, you know just a couple you know some single person out there that's, you know, trying to figure things out as best they can, you know, on their own. And so, you know, it's, it's salvation that's intertwined. Again, I have another story here that, um, another anecdote, that whenever this guy said this, I was just speechless. I just couldn't believe it. It's like, this is one of the most profound things I've ever heard. And that is, you know, it's not uncommon in the life of a priest. You get a telephone call. Uh, yeah, Father, this is so-and-so up at, you know, 2 West at the hospital, you know, second floor, West Wing. And, um... We have a, we have, there's a family up here, they want to see a priest. And it's like, okay, fine. So you go up there and usually you're just kind of going in blind. You don't have any idea what you're walking into, whether it's just somebody with a stub toe or someone that's going to die within the next 10 minutes. And so you just kind of have to go in with your eyes wide open and, and you know, try to figure out what people need and, and what you can do for them. So I go in and there's a man there and his wife and the doctor and the nurse are in there and, and, um, I, I just kind of walked in and kind of stayed in the back, just kind of be quiet because the doctor was doing his stuff. And he went ahead and left the room. And, um, and I said, hi, I'm Father Fred. I'm someone called. What can I do for you folks? And, um, and the husband just said it in plain language. He says, he goes, you know, I'm not doing too good. The doctor says I probably won't live till tomorrow. And um, I want to receive the last rites, which last rites, we can talk about that sometime. And I said, okay, fine. I said, I can take care of that. And I said, I also brought Holy Communion. Do you want to go to communion too? And, um, and the man said, well, no, Father. He goes, the problem is I'm dying from stomach cancer. 
and I can't really eat anything. I said, oh, okay, I understand. And then here it is. This is, this is the, the thing that he said that I was just, I was just totally taken back. He said, I'm not going to be able to receive communion. My wife will just have to go to communion for me. My wife will have to go to communion for me. Think about that. I mean, I'd like to, I guess I'd like to go back to the seminary and talk to some of the, you know, the high-powered theologians there that really know their theology better than me and, and ask. It's like, you know, that's probably true, isn't it? Because of the bond of the sacrament of matrimony, their salvation is bound up together that if the man or the woman, you know, if, if one of the spouses could not receive Holy Communion, the other one could receive the Holy Communion for them, and they would receive the same benefits of that sacrament as if they had received it themselves. Um, that's what the man was thinking. And the thing of it is, I don't think he's too far from the truth. In fact, I think he might be dead on. So again, this idea, you know, here you have this man dying from cancer and, you know, from stomach cancer and says, no, my wife will have to go to communion for me. That, again, that's, you know, one of these moments as a priest, you just look back on it and go, man, that, that was profound. That was really something else. So again, you know, we look at the, at the marriage and the, you know, in the sacrament of matrimony, the salvation of the couple is just intertwined. You can't separate the two. And, you know, St. Paul says, wife, for all you know, you may save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you may save your wife. In that situation with that woman, you know, with that man and that woman, when the woman received communion and then, you know, the benefits of that communion were, were, were passed on to or were, were enjoyed, you know, by her dying husband, there you go, right there. So I thought that was really something else. The other one, the last thing I want to talk about on this broadcast, is we talk about the bond between husband and wife. Um, in Ephesians chapter 5, St. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and handed himself over for her to sanctify her, cleansing her by the bath of water and the word, that he might present to himself the church in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So here we have you know, St. Paul comparing the relationship of husband and wife to the relationship with Christ and the church. Then St. Paul goes on to cite the book of Genesis, and you know, Jesus cites this as well. And in the Gospel of St. Mark chapter 10, where, um, where St. Paul and Jesus both cite from Genesis chapter 2, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then St. Paul goes on to say, This is a great mystery, but I speak in reference to Christ and the church. In any case, each one of you should love his wife as himself, and the wife should respect her husband. The idea of marriage here on earth being a reflection of the relationship with Jesus and, you know, and the church actually comes also from the book of Revelation in chapter 19. It says, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Okay, the Lamb is Jesus, the bride is the church. To her it has been granted to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen and the righteous deeds of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, what is the marriage supper of the Lamb? That's the Eucharist, where you have the Lamb who is sponsoring the supper, and you know, the marriage feast you know, is, is you know, the, the bride is the church. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Okay? So here in the book of Revelation, we have St. John, and then we also have St. Paul, likening the, the bond between husband and wife to the bond between Christ and the church. Now, the thing is, is again, these are analogies. You know, St. Paul, is, is, you know, Paul and, and the book of Revelation are telling us, it's like, yeah, do you want to understand what the bond between Jesus and the church is like? Look at marriage. Look at a married couple. And there's a lot of things that they have in common. Well, the thing is, is that if we have, don't have any married couples, we have very few of them, and we have very few young people that are going to marriage, going to weddings and witnessing marriages and so on, and then we have more and more of our young people being raised in households where the, the couple that, you know, that you know, is there, I mean, it might not even be the, the father that sired the children or the mother that bore them, it's just you know, somebody's boyfriend or girlfriend, but when, when, when they have no immediate, direct experience of marriage, well, then they're going to read the Bible and go, 
this makes no sense. What do you mean marriage of the lamb? You know, what do you mean St. Paul saying, you know, that, that um, you know, I'm talking about the relationship of Christ and the church? They're not going to get it. It's not going to make any sense. And so, again, we can see, you know, how the idea of, um, of, of the marriage bond is important if we're going to understand, you know, these, these, these very, um, you know, critical pieces of our faith. I think, you know, when we talk about the marriage bond, again, a couple more anecdotes I would share with you. One was when I was in the seminary, there was a buddy of mine from Kentucky. And um, the seminary was on the, down in southern Indiana on the Ohio River. And so if you just drove a few miles and went across the river, you're in Kentucky. And um, so this buddy of mine, he said, hey, I'm going home this weekend. You want to come with me? Yeah, sure. You know, so went home and, you know, saw the house where he grew up with and everything and so on. And we got there and his mom's there. And um, he say, he goes, well, mom, where's dad? And, and she goes, well, you went fishing, didn't you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. And so, so my buddy's kind of, you know, he, he just, you know, it was totally made perfect sense to him because ever since he'd been a little kid, his dad, and I don't know if it was an army buddy or something, but they would go up to Minnesota every year in the spring and go fishing. And so off you went. Now, keep in mind, this is like 1990, 1991, something like that. There were no cell phones back then. You know, this was all, you know, back in those days, there was pay phones, you know, there was landlines and so on. And that was it. So we got to this guy's house on Friday night, I believe it was. And then on Saturday, you know, so his mom fed us and everything. We had a nice time. And then on Saturday, his mom was, you know, cooking dinner and setting up the table. And she set the place for her husband. And my friend goes, he goes, Mom, is Dad coming home? She goes, yeah. Did he call? No. Well, how do you know he's coming home? He's coming home. Well, I know. You said he's coming home, but how do you know? He, he didn't, did you call him? Did he call you? No, I just know he'll be here. And sure enough, about 4.30 in the afternoon, there's Dad, you know, saying, you know, they had a cooler full of fish, and he'd say, oh, we call the fish we were going to catch, and, and um, you know, decide just to go ahead and come home a day or two early. So they did. Well, the thing is, how would she know that? You know, she knew it because of this mysterious bond between husband and wife that allows them to communicate on a level that, you know, non-married folks just don't understand. And that's exactly what happened in that particular case. Or, you know, another little anecdote from many years ago, I got called out of the, called out on a, on a Sunday afternoon up to the hospital. It was there in Hayes, America. And um, I got called to the hospital on a Sunday afternoon and I go in and again, you just walk into these things blind, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. And so I walked in and, you know, I could see there was somebody laid in the bed there. And, um, and I said, hi, I'm Father Fred, the, the hospital called, what can I do for you? And, and the man looks at me and he goes, well, Father, my wife just died. And so I'm so sorry, you know, and, and so you know, there they were, there was the husband, you know, the wife, the dead wife is in the bed. And then, you know, I think one of, one of the daughters was there, you know, she was probably about my age, you know, probably 40 some years old, something like that. And so I'm sitting there talking to him a little bit. And, and so I said, well, you know, Bob, whatever the guy's name was, how long had you and Sue been married? And again, it's one of those moments where you go, I can't believe I just heard what I just heard. He goes, 65 years, not near long enough. And I thought, wow. I mean, think of the panorama of that man's life. He came into this world. He was a little boy. He was a teenager. He was a young man. He got married, you know, took delight in his, in his, in his new bride. They were married for 65 years. You know, Lord knows all the, you know, the ups and downs and victories and, and failures and, you know, good days and bad days and, you know, joys and sorrows and stuff that took place over those 65 years. And all he could do was look at his wife and say, 65 years, not near long enough. You know, that's that bond. You know, that's that bond of, you know, between husband and wife that St. That Paul and the book of Revelation talks about as the bond between Christ and the church. And see, again, if we don't have a good understanding as to what that marriage bond looks like, then whenever the Bible tries to describe the bond of, 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 of the love of Christ between himself and the church in terms of the, the bond of a man and a woman in marriage, if we don't have that understanding of what a bond of man and a woman in marriage looks like, we're not going to understand what the Bible's talking about. So we can see how, the, how the, those things are important. So again, I've hoped to kind of give a little bit of a balanced thing on this installment of Double-Edged Sword in that, you know, in the first half of the program, you know, we looked at the, you know, the, 
the bad and the ugly of what's going on with marriage in this country right now. You know, that it's, it's really on the ropes and we all, I think everybody knows that, you know, marriage is in a lot of trouble. But at the same time, you know, we were also able to look at, at some of the things, you know, how, you know, that, that how prayer itself, I think that prayer would be, you know, something that would really help a lot of marriages, you know, stay, not only just stay together, but also help them to flourish and grow. If the, if the husband and the wife would just humble themselves before Almighty God and pray, you know, that again, as this one lady told me, it's awful hard to stay, you know, angry at someone that, that, you, that you've been praying with. There was another couple that I dealt with when I was first assigned to the campus center in Hayes back in, in the early 2000s. And um, they were going to get married. And I talked to them about prayer within their marriage. And, and the groom-to-be, he says, well, yeah, he goes, I'm going to lead the rosary. I said, you are? And he goes, yeah. He goes, well, growing up, he goes, my dad led the rosary every night at our house. I thought, wow, if you do that, you're going to have a, you're going to have a sound family life, that's for sure. So again, prayer within marriage and family is, is, is critical. Um, we saw how marriage and salvation are intertwined. You know, St. Paul says, you know, wife for all you know, you may save your husband. Husband for all you know, you may save your wife. And then that bond between husband and wife, um, which is illustrated for us, or it helps to illustrate for us, um, the bond between Christ and his church. So again, I am Father Fred Gatchett. I am the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina and the pastor at Sacred Heart Cathedral here in, in Salina. And you've been listening to the Double-Edged Sword program here on our fine family of Catholic Divine Mercy radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KGOH 89.1 Colby, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, KJDM 101.7 Lindsburg Salina, and our flagship station where it all began, KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And here on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. Um, we invite you to visit our website at dv as in Victor, dvmercy.com anytime and you know check out archived installments of the Double-Edged Sword program and the One Body program, both of which are locally produced here for, you know, for, for Divine Mercy Radio. Also, when you get onto the website, you'll find our telephone number. You'll find the donate button. Um, we get by totally on donations here from fine folks like you who listen to our, to our programs, listen to our radio station, and we're hoping that you benefit from them. So again, um, we, we invite you to you know, check out our website, check out all the benefits that Catholic Radio has to offer. In the meantime, we'll be signing off for now. Goodbye, God bless, and keep the faith. <laughs>